Welcome to Gaia's Consciousness Podcast, expanding your mind and spirit. Learn even more at Gaia.com. Watch interviews, movies, and original series created to empower the evolution of consciousness. For more information, visit GaiaPodcast.com. Your journey begins here. We spend a third of our lives sleeping. What if we could use that time to expand our consciousness, problem solve, create? Charlie Morley says that if we can consciously engage with our dreams, an entire world opens up to us to both play in and heal in. Lucidity in dreams means greater lucidity in our daily lives. First of all, welcome, Charlie. I love the subject of dreams. And we're going to start out with the big question first, and then we'll kind of back engineer the story from Sounds there. Sounds good to me. The big question is, some people and some ancient traditions believe this is the dream mm. and that that is our real life. What do you think about that? <laughs> big question. I can't say for sure whether this is all a dreamlike illusion and when we go to sleep, it's less of a dream or more of a dream and when we die, it's less of a dream or more of a dream. I don't know. But what I do know is the same rule applies. Right now, if this were a lucid dream rather than waking reality, I would know that you are part of me, that you are not separate from me. And because you're part of me, I'm gonna give you all of my attention and all of my love. So I think the same rule applies. If we can show love in the waking state, love in the dream state, and love in the after death state, then we cover all bases because love is the most powerful force there is in the universe. So I don't know what's the dream or what's not, but I know that I'm gonna show love as much as I can. Well, what's interesting is if this, what we call daily life, is but a dream, mm -hmm. as some traditions believe, that when we're out of the body, we're our true selves, mm -hmm. then we could treat life with so much more adventure. Yes. We could experiment and create and play more, but because we think this is it, this is all we've got, we take it so seriously and we really cut off our creativity and don't take the chances we would take yes. if we saw it otherwise. Exactly. So my teacher, Lama Yeshe Rinpoche, who's the abbot of Samaling Monastery in Scotland, a Tibetan refugee from the 60s, 70s. He said that one of the greatest benefits of lucid dreaming, so the art of training the mind to become conscious within your dreams, is that it gives you a better sense of humor. And I was like, out of all these amazing kind of Tibetan Buddhist things where it said to, you know, train yourself at the moment of death and do your spiritual practice in your sleep, he said the best thing is it gives you a sense of humor. Because in a lucid dream, you can interact with things that seem as real as this. You know, in a lucid dream, I can touch the lucid dream chair and it will feel like this. It will have the same texture as, as this material. I can touch my arm and I can even notice the hairs on my arm. So I see that the human mind has a huge potential to create dreamlike illusion. This means that the next time I'm in the waking state, whatever that means, I can also interact with this dream with a similar sense of flexibility. One of the trainings is to walk through walls in your lucid dreams. Now, for ages, I thought this was a practice so eventually you could walk through walls in this state. Right. What I now realize is the reason my teacher was training me to do that was because nothing seems to be more solid than a brick wall. So if in the lucid dream state, you can train yourself to walk through a brick wall, you're creating a new habit of mind that says things that seem to be solid are not always so. So the next time you confront the brick wall of your own self-doubt in the waking state, the brick wall of your own poor me in the waking state, the brick wall of your own bull in the waking state, so too can you walk through that and see it as, as flexible as it was in the lucid dream. And this gives yes. us a sense of humor. 
It does. And not only that, you can practice. Yeah. There's nothing but time and opportunity in the dream world to practice and to work things through even, we'll talk about this later because as you say, 99% of, in your, your experience, 99% of what we encounter is ourselves mm -hmm. in one degree mm -hmm. or another, but there's still that 1%. Yeah. And we still do connect with others and we can, we can practice and play out into the future with ourselves and with others. So it's yes. a wonderful experimental ground, Yes. right? And yeah. that should be reflected in our daily life as one big, I think Buckminster Fuller said that once he, he was suicidal at one point, um, he had failed at some things and finally he realized, but life is just an experiment. I'm just going to make everything an experiment. Major contributions to this planet but it was that attitude that it's all an experiment. Yeah. And that's what I love about the notion of taking the lucid dream state into the waking yeah. state. So let's talk about where lucid dreaming happens on a physiological level, we'll get into a little bit mm -hmm. of the science of it, the prefrontal cortex and mm -hmm. so forth, and how we can start tapping into or waking that part up and then we'll go into the Tibetan dream yoga. Absolutely. So your question there about training, using yeah. the lucid dream state as a rehearsal space for yes. the waking state. That's been talked about in Tibetan Buddhism for thousands of years, but now we have science to back it up. Talk about some of it. Okay. So when you are having a non-lucid dream, so your normal everyday dreams where you're dreaming away but don't know you're dreaming, the back part of the brain, the brain stem visual cortex, highly activated. But the front part of the brain, especially the prefrontal cortex, is deactivated. Now the prefrontal cortex, scientists believe, is where your sense of self resides, your sense of agency, your sense of I am Charlie having experience is around the prefrontal cortex. Right, and that's where a lot of beta activity happens and it's where we go about our life, kind of a lot of left brain activity and so exactly. forth as well. Now in a non-lucid dream, that is deactivated, which is why you can happily dream that you're the queen of Egypt and you believe it. Mm -hmm. It's only when we wake up, the prefrontal cortex switches back on and we go, oh, I'm not really the queen of Egypt, I was dreaming I was the queen of Egypt. Right. On that basis, when we have a lucid dream, we now know what part of the brain is activated. It is, of course, the prefrontal cortex. So you're dreaming away, you're the queen of Egypt, and then suddenly prefrontal cortex becomes engaged. Ah, I'm not really the queen of Egypt, I'm having a lucid dream about being the queen of Egypt. Now once that happens, not only is your sense of self engaged, so you can decide what to do, but once the prefrontal cortex is activated, neuroplasticity becomes activated too. And this is where it gets really interesting. Neuroplasticity, of course, the phenomena of the brain to rewire itself in favor of a repeated action or habit. Yes. Neurons that fire together, wire together, the classic thing, right? Once you get lucid, what you do in the lucid dream, how you spend the lucid dream actually rewires your brain in favor of that activity. This means that you can learn in your lucid dreams. So interestingly, the first people to put funding into this were the German Sports Science Association at Heidelberg University. Yes. Because they thought, well, if you can actually retrain your brain through lucid dreaming, what if we teach it to athletes? So they did a big study, over 100 athletes involved. They whittled it down to about 20 who uh, could learn lucid dreaming, spent a few months training so they could have these lucid dreams uh, almost at will. They put them into the brain scanners, they gave them all the psychological tests. Then once they got lucid, out of all the amazing things they could do in their lucid dream, like meeting your inner child and integrating trauma, like working with uh, stressful situations in the daytime and reframing them through your dreams, like meeting Godhead, meeting Buddha in your lucid dreams, no. They were told to do squats. 
So literally in the lucid dream, they're dropping, doing squats. Build right? those quadriceps. Exactly. <laughs> the next day, they put them back in the brain scanners, they give them all the psychological tests. Long story short, they found that they could increase their capacity to do squats by training in the lucid dream. Some of them actually had increased muscle mass due to the training in the lucid dream. Now, of course, it's not that their muscles were growing in the lucid dream because they were just imagining doing it, but they were strengthening the neural pathways, which meant in the waking state when they did squats, they could do more of them, and this led to increased muscle mass. So this is squats, right? They yeah. did the same for, for press-ups and stuff like that. But so what? We can get a nice bum and tum if we work out in the lucid dream. Imagine if we practice our meditation in the lucid dream and create those neural pathways. Imagine if we practice loving kindness, if we practice compassion, if we practice being the person that we know we could be, if we could just remove that block of fear that stops us being that person. That's how we can really retrain our brains through lucid dreaming. That's interesting because as you're speaking about that, I'm thinking about um, another person I interviewed recently, which went back to a book for, that was written in 1960, I believe, um, called Psycho-Cybernetics, and there were others at the time, too, that he referenced was they did a lot of studies that had to do with people doing this, but during waking time. Yeah. Simply, in a relaxed state, daydreaming a repeated reality in over a course of 21 days or 30 days, depending on whoever the, science, the clinical group was, and finding these very similar results. But it was a daydreaming kind of yes. experience. Now, would you say qualitatively there would be any maybe difference between the daydreaming and the lucid dreaming version of that? Very interesting question. The control condition for some of those studies with athletes and lucid dreaming was daytime visualized preparation. Interesting. What they found was simply because the lucid dream is the most 100% visualization a human being will ever experience. Yeah, it's full sensory. Exactly. Yeah that visualized training techniques work with far greater efficacy in the lucid dream than in the waking state. So yeah, it's like visualized training max. So we can go into the same field of intention, mm -hmm. but it set it into motion with our intention mm -hmm. in dream time. Yes. Rather than doing our affirmations, our mantras, our visualization during the daytime. Not that that hurts anything, it doesn't. But you're saying we're going to, it's more efficacious if we actually set it into motion intentionally before we go to sleep? Yes, I think we still have to do the work in the daytime. <laughs> Just like those athletes who are practicing squats in the lucid dream only got better at squats when they practice them in the waking state, so too. Our meditation, our compassion, our mantra recitation in the lucid dreams is incredibly powerful. From the Buddhist tradition, it said you have between seven and nine times the power of consciousness when you engage a spiritual practice in the lucid dream compared to the waking state. But although we are asleep for a third of our lives, so let's make use of that third to do our spiritual practice, we're awake for two thirds. That's so it's right. not good just doing the lucid dreaming then forgetting about the waking <laughs> state. True. We've got to keep them both in balance. Absolutely. Okay, here's something that's kind of, uh, some people wonder what the difference might be. So if they say we leave the body, some aspect of ourselves leaves the body, but it still remains connected through this little silvery cord. Mm -hmm. um, as we sleep at night, um, what's happening when we say astral travel or have an out-of-body experience mm. in comparison to dream time? Because for a lot of people, it would seem a very similar experience. Yeah, so my wife's actually the expert on this. She teaches uh, workshops and out-of-body experience and I do the lucid dreaming stuff. Um, we would both agree that a lucid dream is actually the mind flipped inwardly. 
So the lucid dream is absolutely an in-body, in-brain experience. Mm -hmm. You are exploring the totality of your own psychology in personified form. So if you meet your dad in a lucid dream, it's not really your dad, it might have a little aspect. It is your psychological projection of your relationship with the father archetype. So everything's internal. However, an out-of-body experience is pretty much the opposite. In a, in a verified out-of-body experience, an aspect of your consciousness or your, to use a Buddhist term, mind stream, is dislocating from the gross corporeal form, your physical body, yes. and experiencing either an energy duplicate of waking reality, or in many cases, waking reality itself. So um, they are different. A lot of people get confused between lucid dreams and OBEs. But in fact, uh, a full-on OBE, for one, you don't have to be asleep. You can do it in the hypnagogic state as you're falling asleep, and right. you can do it in the meditation state. Right, and in dream time, you're virtually always safe in that that mechanism automatically knows what to do and how to do it. Where out of body and astral travel, you better be skilled and know what you're getting yourself into. Brilliant point. In the lucid dream, you are dealing with your own internal environment. Yes. It's your own psychology. Now, I don't know about you, but my internal psychology is still pretty scary. So you can still go to some deep, dark places and wake up with a bit of a fright. This is gonna bring a question up in a minute, go ahead. But it's your shadow content. It's mm -hmm. your psychology. However, when you have an OBE, you ain't in Kansas anymore. Oh, you know, no. you're, you're out there. So oh, yeah. in the same way, you can walk down a street in London 1,000 1, times, and 999 times, you'll be safe. But maybe one in a 1,000 times, someone steals your phone. Someone tries to, to, to nick your wallet, as we say in London. Who knows? Maybe it's the same with the OBE work. So I think if we are going out, we just need to be aware that we are in a place that may be shared with others. So I would suggest anyone who's doing out-of-body work to do it from a foundation or at least learn from someone with a lineage-based foundation. Someone who is linked to something that's been going longer than they have. Something that is a power source, whether it's a spiritual lineage or the lineage of a certain teacher or even the lineage of a certain plant medicine. That gives you a safety net with which you can go out of body um, with a sense of safety. Whereas I think if you just kind of pick up a book and you're just kind of by yourself out there, I don't know how confident I'd feel. Well, I can attest to that because I'm an explorer. You know, yeah. I like to adventure. And um, a lot of times I'll just do it on the fly. Mm -hmm. um, and <laughs> which it gets you into some pretty interesting situations. And at one time I did end up in a very dicey situation out of body into another realm uh, that was a it was a place I hadn't seen before. It was kind of everything was gray, yeah. kind of gray and pale blue yeah. shades, and a, a terrible lurking energy. Mm. And I couldn't find my way out. Mm. And actually, my dog, who was always silent during these types of meditations, mm -hmm. for the first time and only time, jumped up and barked, uh, barked and jumped on my meditation partner. We were there at the same time. We would travel together. Yeah and jumped on her, she screamed, it snapped me back, but I was damaged. So I was you, actually damaged. So the dog sensed the, the danger? Do, the dog wow. sensed the danger, and then I had a dream a couple mm -hmm. nights later that this whole side of my aura was blown out in black, mm -hmm. and a hole, basically, mm -hmm. leaking, mm -hmm. and that I would um, I'd be dead within 18 months if it wasn't fixed. Wow. And so, I won't tell you what I went through, but I went through some things. Yeah. They instantly saw what was going on. It was all been, re it was all repaired, but it was scary. What I did do though is, I thought, well, come on, not really, mm -hmm. you know, 
but I was scared enough by the dream I went to one of those aura photography machines because yeah. someone said, oh, there's a new one in Sedona. It's actually really good. And I thought, yeah, right. You know, they're just, usually they're pretty basic. Showed that exact thing Away. right in that place. The whole thing was black and blown wow. out. So I took it seriously, yeah. got some help and got fixed up, but I'm just bringing it up yeah. because I just went without any understanding of what I was doing, and it's not a good place yeah. to go. Yeah, it's, it's a great example. It's, um, it, God, it makes me feel so lucky, actually, to be part of a, of a lineage. Yeah. Um, the one time, you know, I've had quite a few dozen OBs, uh, you know, hundreds of lucid dreams, but only a few dozen out-of-body experiences, and just on one occasion, I went out and I was actually feeling very high energy, but I think maybe that's kind of like uh, you then become a beacon for mm -hmm. energy. Oh, and yeah, just yeah. once this thing kind of, it felt like a leech, this like energy form just kind of latched onto me and I started getting tired. And I was like, oh, whoa, this is, this is never happened. This is, this is sucking my energy. And I just, I didn't even have a chance to say my Lama's name, but yes. I just thought Lama yeah. Yeshe Rinpoche. I just thought of Buddha. And it wasn't like this thing let go. It was like the thing had never latched on. Right. And I realized, wow, in that space, if you are you connected your to a frequencies. lineage, yeah. yeah, and if you can connect to a powerful frequency, actually you are totally safe out there. Right. And there is no harm if we can step into that frequency. Yes. But if we are unaware of that before we go out, you know, it, it can have consequences. Well, let's also talk about when you encounter beings and you, you, don't, you think you're dreaming or you may know you're not dreaming and you're actually passing through that place just before you enter back into this reality that passes through where a lot of disincarnate entities mm. are and exist. And one of the things I understood, I have learned to understand is you don't want to entangle yourself and go touching beings or let them touch you in this place upon entering back into the body mm. and into rea this reality mm. again. Have you had any experience with that? It's interesting. The, the Buddhist view, right, is that this is a compassionate universe. Yeah. There is no dark energy. There mm -hmm. are no, there's no evil. This is a compassionate universe and you are a fully enlightened Buddha. You just haven't fully woken up to that. Right. Yet. So from that case, no, there's nothing to be scared of when we go out. Right. But it's, I sometimes think, well, it's all very good for Buddhists to say that. Yeah. That's because Buddhists spend their whole time practicing love and compassion. Right. So I think if you are a practitioner of love and compassion, yeah. the universe reflects that. So yes, yeah. it becomes a compassionate universe yeah. and there is nothing to harm you. However, how many billions of people are there in the world today who aren't coming from a point of love and compassion? And so the universe will reflect the duality yes. of both Especially when you're tripping through all these different yeah. dimensions coming back into your body. Yeah. You just don't know if you're going to kind of pass through a little more slowly a yeah. certain dimension yeah. sometimes. So the Buddhist view is no, you're yeah. totally safe in yeah. this compassionate universe. But I think we're totally safe and this is a compassionate universe if we are coming from a point of love. Right. And still maybe just to be wise and not entangle when you're there. That's their world. It's not your world. And send love. Yes. I mean, I've, that's what I, that's happened a couple of times where yes. I've tripped through and realized I'm in that in-between yeah. place. And just sending love to the other person that's reaching out to be recognized or touched is more than adequate. Exactly. Yeah. And the same rules apply within the lucid dream state. Yes. A lot of people, when they have their first few lucid dreams, they like to run around, go, they know, oh, everything in here is me, right? So they go up to dream characters and say, hey, you're just a dream. And the dream character kind of looks a bit upset and goes, no, no, I'm not, I'm real. And they, no, no, I'm lucid dreaming. You, you don't even exist. And I think, what's the point of that? Yeah. What is to be gained from this, this kind of power play ego trip by telling our dream characters they don't exist? Now, perhaps they don't exist, but in their reality of your dream, they do. 
So I don't think there's anything to be gained by doing that. No, I so don't So what either. I say is, once you're lucid, run around your lucid dream hugging everything. Hug the people, hug the, definitely hug the scary people. Hug the table, hug the trees. If everything in the lucid dream is us, then show everything love. And if you run around your lucid yes. dreams hugging everything, the next day, of course, you feel amazing because you've had a thousand internal psychological hugs. Right. And so too are you rewiring the brain to be more likely to hug life. Maybe right. not literally hugging the people on the, on the uh, tube underground, yeah, yeah. but you could hug them with your, with your intention. Yes, you wouldn't want to try that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can try it in London, see what happens. You see what happens, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, so this is something I've always been curious about. When I've interviewed people, and also just in daily life, talking with people about dreams, I, I don't think this is a prejudice, it's my observation, mm -hmm. that men seem to be much more prone toward the nightmare scape and violent dreams than women. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I mean, my guess is, this is my own point of view, so I'm labeling it as such, that um, if one has been incarnating dominantly male, for example, mm -hmm. or dominantly female, you carry a set of historical experiences. Mm -hmm. And if you've been incarnating dominantly male, you've been exposed probably to a lot of warfare, violence, and that sort of thing. And so that's, that's stuck there in your being, in your matrix, right? And you're having to play it out in dream time more. It's, I mean, it's a very interesting theory. And because the first time I've heard it, I don't want to agree or disagree until yeah. I've had time to, to, to mull it over. But it sounds very interesting. Yeah. As you were speaking, what it did make me think of, though, was the possibility of a toxic masculinity that a lot of men nowadays and that too. are working with Absolutely. being expressed in the dream state in the form of nightmares, mm -hmm. or at least in a conflict. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure that goes for people in uh, female sex too and people of fluid gender, but it is interesting to look at the traits of dreaming that occur between the genders, yes. even between the nationalities, yes. and even between the ages. And I've spent the last 10 years traveling like, you know, 21 countries around the world, everywhere from Zimbabwe to Mexico, teaching lucid dreaming. And I love to see what were the dreams of a Zimbabwean witch doctor right. compared to a, a, a Mexican psychotherapist. Yes. And actually what I've seen is they're not so different. Yeah. That actually the, the presentation, the coloring, the, the kind of brush strokes may be different, mm -hmm. but the overall canvas of what people dream about, the concerns they have, the emotional issues that arise within the dream is kind of universal and beyond sex and gender. Interesting. Yeah, I was just making that observation because I always hear about these violent nightmares with men, but I don't hear about that from the women. Mm. Women, a nightmare is, oh, you know, my boyfriend left me, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's a different kind of nightmare, right? <laughs> it's still pretty scary. It's scary, but oftentimes relational abandon, yeah. abandonment. It yeah. seems like with women, abandonment is mm -hmm. a really big one. Mm -hmm. um, whereas with men, it's actually having to fight off, yeah. you know, the yeah. boogeyman. Well, there's interesting theories if you look at um, the neurological basis of why we dream. Mm -hmm. So modern day neuroscience doesn't acknowledge an unconscious in the same way as, uh, you know, Carl Jung would, would describe the unconscious, but it acknowledges unconscious processes. Yes. And it believes that, um, or modern day research believes, that the reason we dream, and specifically the reason we have nightmares, is perhaps the reason has got us the top predator on the planet. Because when we were cave men and cave women, if we could dream about running from the saber-toothed tiger, mm -hmm. the next night fighting the saber-toothed tiger, the next night hiding up a tree from the saber-toothed tiger, 
Next week, if we were to encounter the saber-toothed tiger, we were more likely to survive because we had rehearsed these scenarios within our dreams. Right. So sometimes I think when we have dreams based on the four Fs of the reptilian brain, feeding, mm -hmm. fighting, fleeing, and we know the what, other one. Sex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll use the S word for that rather than the F, F. word. <laughs> um, but sometimes it's actually just our brain mechanisms kind of running through these processes to help keep us safe. So some people freak out, oh, I had a really sexy dream, I had a really violent dream, uh, is there something wrong with me? And actually from a neurological point of view, it could be just an updating, a bit like when your kind of iPhone updates itself, right, right. you know? overnight. Yeah, to kind of keep you safe. Mm -hmm. um, so that the next day if you encounter violence, you're more prepared. If you encounter um, sexuality, you're more prepared to engage sexuality, yeah. um, to feed yourself, to flee. Right, interesting. Gaia.com lets you explore over 8,000 films, documentaries, and original series. There's so much going on in the unseen world. Hidden truth. Why in the media today? They still seem to hold back on these incredible stories. Behind an unknown universe. Where science and spirituality all come together. Gaia.com. Content you can't find anywhere else. For more information, visit GaiaPodcast.com. It seems like because the scape is so broad in terms of the type of dreams we have, and like you say, 99% of the dreams may be mm. addressing aspects of ourselves, but there are other things. And I want to talk about two types of anomalies. Uh, one of them is the 1% mm. where other things are happening. And I'm going to run a couple cases by you too. But then there's this other thing I notice in my own dream time, not that traditional, ordinary kind of dream, but there'll be large phenomena mm. that are taking place, often mm. in the sky, mm. where something starts shining and sparkling and lining up and taking on geometrical form. And then actually, uh, a couple weeks ago this happened. Mm -hmm. The geometrical form, the lines started connecting and it turned into uh, a feline type of mechanism mm. that jumped out of the sky. And I was inside a room looking out a window, watching this thing happen, and so were other people. It was a phenomena, cosmic mm. phenomena, that was happening that was pouncing down onto Earth, for example. Mm -hmm. So your dream there sounds like a perfect example of what within Tibetan Buddhism we might class as a clarity dream. So within Tibetan Buddhism, there are three main types of dream class. Samsaric dreams, which are dreams based on our experience of samsara, which is unenlightened existence. Mm -hmm. So until we're fully awakened, we're experiencing samsara. Mm -hmm. So samsaric dreams are your everyday dreams, non-lucid. Right. Um, then we have clarity dreams. Within clarity dreams, the two main aspects are lucid dreams, dreams where you know that you're dreaming as you're dreaming, but also just clarity dreams themselves which are dreams of archetypal significance. Dreams where one might receive spiritual teachings, dreams where one might receive uh, insight of clarity. And that dream there sounds like a clarity dream. That was not your average dream no, based on your daily experience. Dream. No, no, not and at all. And you can feel it. People say, how do I know if it was a clarity right. dream? Because the next day, you'll feel it, you'll remember it, it will have emotional resonance, sometimes even somatic, physical oh, resonance. Yes. Yes. And you realize, okay, that dream wasn't coming from my everyday mind. No. That was coming from something deeper. Perhaps it was coming from my Buddha mind, my essentially and innately enlightened essence, mm -hmm. which every now and again, you know, bursts through like a geyser, bursting through the earth, and we get these flashes of insight. And through dream practice, and through the training that you're obviously already doing, we have more of these clarity dreams and less samsaric dreams. Until it's said when a, a fully awakened being 
um, dreams, they stop having samsaric dreams. So the right. only dreams they have are either lucid dreams, clarity dreams, or the third type, which is called clear light experiences, mm -hmm. which is an experience of non-dual awareness within often the deep sleep state. Um, that's almost beyond, well, that's definitely beyond my pay grade, um, but those are, are very, very special experiences. Why do dreams feel more real than life? What is, it, what is it that's unbounded there that makes a dream, a clear dream, live within our mind, within our field and memories, even so much stronger than a, quote, earthly experience? Great question. A lot of people wake from a lucid dream and they say, the lucid dream was like realer than real. It was yes. this experience of hyper-reality. And when you hear people speak like that, it can be easy to think they're entering into hyperbole, but actually they're not. A lucid dream is literally an experience of hyper-reality. For example, right now, our experience of this reality is limited by our senses, right? right? Our experience of touch is limited by the sensitivity of our fingertips. Our experience of taste, which I've already, as I'm getting older, notice is declining with age, right? I'm liking spicier foods, I need more to get that kick, right? <laughs> uh, eyesight, any viewers who wear uh, glasses will know that right now, our experience of reality, what we see, is limited by our vision, by our eyesight. In the lucid dream, though, you have perfect vision. Because yes. you're not seeing through your eyes, you're seeing through your mind. In the lucid dream, you have 100% taste capacity because your experience of taste is not being tasted through the tongue, but through your mind. Your experience of touch, when people say, oh, when I touch things in the lucid dream, it felt so real. It's because it's not limited by the touch sensors on your fingertips. It's through the unlimited mind. So you can actually experience a deeper sense of reality, whatever that means, in the lucid dream than you can in the waking state. And the cool thing is you can even boost it. So you can do things in the lucid dream that boost your experience. For example, eyesight. Like I used to wear glasses and um, I was giving a talk once where I spoke about how I healed an ear infection through lucid dreaming. I went into the lucid dream, I did hands-on healing, um, I sent out uh, affirmations of healing intent, and the ear infection got better. Mm. And I actually got heckled. This dude, it was a music fan, he heckled me. I was wearing glasses. He said, oh, why don't you fix your eyesight? And I was so embarrassed and I went red and I just felt so ashamed. And then I thought, okay, if this is all a dream, why did your shadow aspect, this man, yeah. come into this dream and give you that challenge? Right. Maybe it's a gift. Yeah. So I thought, right, next lucid dream, I'm going to go in there and try. So I went into the lucid dream and I thought, right, I'm going to heal my eyes. So I did hands-on healing, put my hands over my eyes, and I called out, my eyes are healed, my immune system is boosted, my eyesight is fixed. Nothing happened. I went in again a week later and I thought, I'll bring in the big guns. So I tried the Tibetan Buddhist mantra of the medicine Buddha. You know, in Tibetan Buddhism, there's a mantra for everything. Right. A mantra to say when you're going to the toilet, a mantra to say when you're having sex, a mantra to say when you're meditating. So I thought. The, so, what is the Tibetan? The, can you share it? I can. The medicine Buddha mantra Om Bekenze Bekenze, Maha Bekenze, Radna Samagate Soha. It sounds German. Probably just my terrible pronunciation. No, no, it just sounds <laughs> German. Okay, say that again so someone could have a chance of slowing, going back over okay. and memorizing it. Uh, Om Bekenze Bekenze, Maha Bekenze. Rasna Samagate Soha. Any Tibetan scholars out there, I'm sorry for my mistranslation, my uh, mispronunciation. Well, you've impressed me, but I don't know the <laughs> difference, right? <laughs> so I got lucid yeah. and I, I think, right, I'll do the mantra. So I start calling out the mantra, doing the hands on healing. And the dream did start to shake, which for me often represents a change. But I woke up 
and actually nothing had changed. I felt really good because I said the mantra, but nothing had changed. Third time lucky. I get lucid a few days later. I go in, I'm about to say the mantra, I'm about to do the hands-on healing. And then, like an intercom over the dream, this voice, my voice, said, the reason you can't see long distances is because there is a conflict within your eyes. And I thought, for a minute, I thought, you know, who said that? I thought, it was me. Mm -hmm. I thought, what a weird thing to say. But he's right. All illness is based on conflict. There's a conflict between the muscles and the lens or a conflict between what I don't want to see in my life. So in the lucid dream, I forgot about the mantra. I forgot about the hands on healing. I flew into the sky and I called out in the lucid dream, my eyes are free of conflict. My eyes are free of conflict. And the dream was like an earthquake. So I go, and I thought, oh, something's happening, something's happening, something's happening. And I wake up. And I haven't worn my glasses since. Oh, that is now, so powerful. I love that story. How bad was your eyesight? Okay, so I need it for theater, films. Yeah, right. I mean, it was pretty bad. My friends used to do this kind of game where when we were driving down the, the motorway, the highway, they used to ask me to read out signs because I was so bad at seeing the signs. So pretty bad. Yeah. Um, and is it perfect now? No, but it is a hell of a lot better than it was. Oh, that's um, amazing. So people have said to me, oh, it's just the placebo effect. Yes. But don't ever say just before a phenomenon like the placebo effect. Exactly. The placebo effect is the most replicable finding of medical research. People forget that, you know, 60 That's to right. 80%, right? So yes, it was just the placebo. But if you think of the placebo being the mind affecting the body, imagine what happens if you engage the placebo effect within the mind, within a huge three-dimensional visualization of your own psychology, it's the placebo effect, but times a thousand. And you said something interesting there because you said the third time. And oftentimes in dreams, three is important. Triplets yes. of experience. Let's yes. talk about that phenomena. I think sometimes we give up too soon. You know, people have a lucid dream and maybe they want to uh, heal their inner child. They had childhood trauma. So they get lucid and one of the best ways to do this is to call forth your inner child, the personification of your childhood experience. So they get lucid, they call out for the inner child and nothing happens. And they wake up and say, it hasn't worked. Now think who your inner child is. Maybe they're shy. If they're traumatized, they're definitely shy, right? So calling them once isn't gonna be enough. They're hiding under the porch. Exactly. Yeah. But if we can go back there a second time, a third time, say, you know, I call my inner child Little Chuck, because when mm -hmm. I was a kid, I was always yeah. called Chuck, right? Yeah. So I say Little Chuck, and eventually he comes. But I have to show Little Chuck I come in peace. I've come to heal, I've come to, to say I love you, I've come to make things right. So often I don't think, maybe it's not even the rule of three, maybe it's the rule of trying again. Mm -hmm. They say with certain Buddhist teachings, you ask the Lama once, they'll say no. You ask them a second time, they'll say stop asking. You ask them a third time, they'll give you the teaching. There maybe you go. it's the same it's with the our third higher self. Time. <laughs> <laughs> so we talk about anomalies in the book and you say, um, look out for anomalies because those are what are indicate, giving you a, a very specific indication in the dream. Exactly. So these are called dream signs. So one of the easiest ways to get lucid is, first of all, to keep a dream diary, to start recording your dreams. Anyone out there who thinks, I don't remember my dreams, I would advise them to try. It seems like a trick question, but when I meet people who say, oh, I don't remember my dreams, I say, when did you last try? And they go, oh, well, I don't try because I don't remember. Oh, you're absolutely right. It's just a matter of instructing yourself ah, I want to remember this dream tonight or bring through something that is significant enough for me to remember when I wake up. I used to even say to my subconscious, wake me at the moment the dream ceases, even if it's an inconvenient time. Perfect. Yeah. So anyone out there who's forgotten their alarm clock 
Yeah. And they're staying away for work. I have to wake up at six o'clock in the morning to catch my flight. Yeah. They wake up at 5.59. Exactly. We know there is, as what Carl Jung referred to, a conscious unconscious. Yes. And that is the bit we're talking to. Yeah. So first of all, set our intention to remember our dreams. Mm-hmm. Then document our dreams in some way, write them down. Mm-hmm. Now in this practice, the reason we write down our dreams isn't so much to interpret them, although personally I'm quite a fan of dream interpretation, but that's a, a different uh, kettle of fish as we say in England. Um, the reason we write down our dreams is to spot patterns. So let's say a couple of weeks of writing down our dreams every night, maybe two or three dreams every night if we can. After a couple of weeks, we've got this um, amount of data and we want to look through this amount of data and spot patterns. So we see, oh wow, look, uh, every, every uh, week or so, twice a week I dream of my dead grandmother. Or wow, once a week I dream I'm naked in public. Or wow, every few days I have that dream I've missed the train or I've missed the bus to work or whatever. So we see these patterns. And what we do is we create lucidity triggers. So my one used to be my dead grandma. So before I went to sleep, I would say, right, Charlie, the next time you see Jay, my dead grandma, you know that you're dreaming because she's dead. So it's got to be the dream. If between now and breakfast, make it even more condensed, if between now and breakfast I see Jay, I am dreaming. Or if between now and breakfast I'm naked in public, I'm hopefully dreaming. Dreaming. (laughs) You know, you create these triggers. Oh, you've taken something. (laughs) Exactly. So you're you're probably dreaming. So basically, yeah, you write down your dreams, you spot patterns, these dream signs, and then you have the intention to dream about them. So a few months ago, my dream signs, uh, probably because we've been trying for a baby, my dream signs became talking baby animals like little cute little talking baby panda bears Uh and talking baby seals. Um, And this kept on coming, I just wasn't getting lucid, and I said, right, next time I see a talking baby animal, I know I'm dreaming. And then a few nights later, the talking panda bears came up, and I'm engaged in deep conversation about veganism, actually. The panda was upset that I was vegetarian and not full vegan. And I was like, well, you know, I'm trying, but it's hard. I'm addicted to cheese. I'm not drinking panda milk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so this panda was really concerned with me being vegan. And then halfway through, I went, am I discussing veganism with a talking baby Panda, I've got to be dreaming. And I became lucid. And then of course, once you're lucid, if you want, you can ask the panda, what do you represent? And in this case, you'll wish to have a baby. And you're like, oh, that's so cool. And then you can go off and do whatever you want to do in the dream. Well, you would think I would have been clued off um, that I was in a dream when I was dreaming about these little, I dream about animals that don't exist. And this one was a little pig dog. And it's a little pig that looks like a dog, and it's all raw and pink, except for a little strip of brown shag carpet around the center. (laughs) I pray that tonight I dream of a pig dog and that I get lucid at that time. I have dreams about the craziest little animals. They're all cute as can be, but none of them exist in this world. They're strange little hybrid creatures. This is beautiful. I love hearing this stuff, right? Because I straight away, when I hear people's dreams go, it's their mind. So I love the fact that in your mind specifically, there are all of these unrecognized, um, cute babe, cute animals. Yes. You know, what does that say about you? This mind that has this kind of uh, creativity, yeah. this mind that has this cute animalistic aspects within it. It's so <laughs> great, you know. I love it. Okay, so sex is common in dreams. Mm. And you talk about this a little bit in the book and just say, you, but one thing you, you have a cautionary note, don't become addicted to going there in your lucid dreams. I mean, this is something coming up big time in the world of virtual reality. 
Yeah. Uh, that's going to be probably the number one sales driver, is my guess is going to be sex. Sex sells. I've sex often sells. thought if I wrote a book called, you know, have, have Sex with Your Deeper Self, Learn the Art of Lucid Dreaming, I'd sell there a million more copies, right? But let's talk about that because yeah. you can do the same thing in your dream time in lucid dreaming even. Yeah, so I learned to lucid dream when I was 16 years old, right? So you imagine this 16-year-old before he's got into Buddhism who reads these books, gets quite good at this practice and gains access to this huge virtual reality simulation which feels as real as waking life, oh, yeah. where the rules of society don't apply. You can imagine what I spent the first like two years of my <laughs> lucid dreaming practice doing. Sex and skateboarding, which at 16 are my two favorite things. Yeah, absolutely. Skateboarding I was doing a lot of, sex not so much. <laughs> <laughs> right, but in your dream time. Yes, yeah, so I would get lucid and they would appear and they'd look so realistic and I'd have all this sexual fantasy and stuff and then go skateboarding. And, you know, was it, was it harmful? Was it harmless? I don't know. Um, now I know all this stuff about neural pathways, I think, you know, maybe that wasn't such a good thing to be doing, you know, to my neural pathways right. uh, at that age. Because they were definitely firing together exactly. through repetition. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. And if I look at some of my, my relationships with women in those yeah. late teens, I got in yeah. some trouble. Yeah. So, you know, with relationships and objectification and, and out of control sexuality. Yeah. Um, my main thing to people now is you don't need to make the same mistake as 16-year-old, you know, completely right. unawakened Charlie. Um, if you do want to engage sex and lucid dreams, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, I've worked with uh, the brilliant guy called Maxwell Hunter, uh, who was not born Maxwell. He was born, uh, I don't know what his name is, but he was born a female uh, a woman. And he was using the lucid dream before he had transition and the operation to go into the lucid dream state and transform his body into the body of a man. He was exploring gender and sexuality within the lucid dream mm. in an incredibly deep and powerful psychological way. Uh, uh, to aid his, his psychological transition from, from woman into man. Another uh, lady who was uh, worried, actually, about her sexuality. It would, became a worry for her. In the lucid dream state, she was able to engage worry-free sexual activity, mm -hmm. same-sex relationship, mm -hmm. um, to explore this and realize, okay, yes, there is part of me that does enjoy this. It's not that sex in lucid dreams is wrong. It's that getting addicted to anything as an escapism can be harmful, so we need to be careful with that. And besides, you have VR goggles for it anyway. <laughs> Soon, coming to a theater near you. Exactly. Like but if in your, your first few lucid dreams, you know, <laughs> first time we're lucid, why not engage sexual fantasy? Yeah. But there comes a point where we put away childish things, yeah. and we go, okay, we can spend our lucid dreams just having sex and fantasy, but from a Buddhist point of view, a place where you have seven times the power of consciousness, a state where you are closer to your fully enlightened nature than you are right now, it would seem such a waste right. to spend all our lucid dreams doing that. Absolutely. And I thought it was worth a mention in your book. And um, one of the things I wanted to bring up is repetitious dreams, mm -hmm. where we have repetitive dreams. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they can last a lifetime or sometimes just during a period of life. And I'll just toss one out as a, an example when I was very little. Um, probably, I'm guessing, ages three to six, right in there, I had dreams that there was this gigantic uh, spider that would fill up, you know, mm. like half of a room, and everyone around would be dead except me. Mm. And it would say, you're fine. Ooh. You're fine. You won't be harmed. Uh-huh. And I'm, you know, I'm afraid of spiders. And so how long did you thing? have that dream? Oh, I had it for a few years. When did it stop? I don't think I had it probably any more after the age of about seven is my guess. What I would love to do is to go back in time, have you keep a dream diary throughout your childhood so we could see the, the, when they were occurring and also to see when they stopped. 
What happened during that day in your seventh year that integrated that aspect of your psychology, mm -hmm. which was crying out to you again and again to be integrated? Mm -hmm. What happened during the day, or perhaps in the dream, mm -hmm. that stopped it happening? The right. great thing about repetitious dreams is they are the unconscious saying you haven't quite got the message yet. Right. So it'll keep on giving it to you again and again, which is why so often nightmares repeat so much more often than the dream where you're having you know, a lunch date with your, with your favorite Hollywood actor, because the lunch date dream with your favorite Hollywood actor was fully integrated. You loved it, right? Yeah. But the nightmares we reject, we deny, so they have to keep coming back with the same message. I had one where... When my dad left my mom, I started having these recurring dreams about, you know, my dad appearing as a really violent figure. Mm -hmm. And I thought I was cool with my dad. I was like, you know, I was in my mid-twenties by now. But obviously it wasn't. My psyche was saying, nah, man, your father archetype is, is wounded and is violent. So I did the work. And I did a brilliant exercise from a book called Manhood, which is about, um, uh, one of these chapters is about fixing your relationship with your dad and it involves spending a day with your dad, getting him to journey back into his past, go back to his school, go back to where he was born, ask him about his father, you know, this great kind of deep psychological work. Mm. The day after I did that practice day with your dad, the dream changed. I dreamt of my dad and it was the first time in about a year since he broke up with mum that he didn't appear as a violent figure, he appeared as normal size. We were sitting by a riverbank and he was feeding me sandwiches in silence. Oh. And I woke up and I thought, I've done it. We've done it. Yes. You know, we've integrated our relationship. Yes. I didn't need to pick up the dream dictionary or speak to a dream no. therapist for that. It was so obvious. Yes. He had gone from this violent, aggressive figure to a placid figure that was nourishing me as we sat by the water element. Right. That I, I love those dreams where it comes to that completion. And I'm yes. going to toss one little one in too. Repetitious dream that lasted for probably 40 years. Wow. Um, starting again at about three, living in San Francisco, which mm. is where I'm from and was born and uh, being in the back seat of a car that would be hurtling down Van Ness Avenue toward the water with no driver in the front. Mm. So out, completely out of control and afraid, you know, and then I'd wake up before the car would crash. That's how it started. Went through life and I get my driver's license. Now I'm in control. Now I'm at the driver's, uh, on the driver's uh, side. And I have the wheel and I have passengers I'm responsible mm. for. Slippery, mm. snowy, icy roads, navigating them to, a certain point of proficiency, but white knuckling it the whole time. The final dream ended um, probably a decade and a half ago now, maybe two decades ago, when I was in the city of Berkeley. It looked like a Wayne Tebow painting, these vertiginous streets, like straight up. And I was driving on this street that was at a very steep pitch. Yeah. And I thought, I don't know. And then I saw at the top, it became, it looped back on itself almost mm. like a roller coaster. Mm. And before it straightened out, and I thought, that's impossible. That, that's physically impossible. Mm -hmm. But I saw a red Corvette do it mm -hmm. ahead of me. I watched the red Corvette, mm -hmm. and the driver was male, and he executed it perfectly. There were no other drivers on this road. And I thought, if he j I watched him do it, that means it can be done. Mm. And so I, I just hit it. And I just, I just knew what to do and how much uh, to step on mm -hmm. the gas to get right through before mm -hmm. stalling out and making it over the mm. top onto the street ahead. And that was it. That was the end of those dreams of having mastered this thing. Yes. And that dream sounds like such a perfect metaphor for life. It was. Is it sometimes we feel like we're hurtling? Or, yeah, exactly. And then we have a family or relationship and suddenly there are other people in the, in the car with us and we're still hurtling. Yes. But at a certain point we realize that actually rather than hurtling down, we're going up and it loops back and that we were always safe. 
You know, it reminds yes. me of a quote from a Tibetan Lama, Chogum Trumpa Rinpoche. He said, the bad news is you're falling. The good news is there's no ground. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it felt like a real accomplishment in that I was responsible for others. I, it defied everything I believed to be true, but I did it anyway. Yeah. And so it was breaking through that barrier of what can be done. Yes. Of the impossible, of walking through the wall, yes. really. And I, again, I would love to know what was happening in your life at that time that you had that dream of completion. Yeah. Because it's never random. Yes, it's you're never right. random. You're right. You know, our dreams can seem random because they're speaking a language we don't understand. And they can seem to appear at random times because most of us are completely out of sync with what's going on with the moon cycles, our own cycles, all this kind of stuff. But if we are in sync, we realize that we get the dreams we need at exactly the right time. There is yes. an innate, enlightened intelligence within us which shines through in the dreams and guides us, but only if we are willing to listen and to take our fingers out of our ears. Absolutely. Okay, let's talk about the 1%. Mm. The 1% of times when it's not just you. Okay, so 99% of everything in the lucid dream is your own psychology. We know this from a neurological point of view because you can see the different parts of the brain firing when you're riding a bicycle in a lucid dream, when you're fighting in a lucid dream, so they know it's connected to the, to the brain and the mind. But might the mind just be showing a processing, excuse me, of a real experience, right? Exactly. Okay. So neuroscience will say, oh, everything in the lucid dream is your own mind. It's all your own psychology, right? And I guess I used to think the same thing too. Um, Tibetan Buddhism says, no. Nah, I don't. We, we I agree with wrong. Tibetan Buddhism. Yeah. And then my experience showed it was wrong. There were times, I say it's 1% of the time, maybe it's more like 10% of the time, where we are experiencing something in our lucid dream state that is not us that is sourced from something wider. Um, I've noted three main places these come from. One is from the collective unconscious, this deep archetypal oceanic consciousness that exists both within our own unconscious, but also in the universal unconscious. Um, the appearance of ancestors. I believe when you have a yes. blood or bone ancestry, when that ancestor dies, it is far easier for them to communicate through your lucid dreams than it is in the waking state. Because right. right now it's so solid, we feel so separate, there's such duality here. Whereas if this was a lucid dream now, I'd know that it was my inner you, that this table was me. So I'm already in a state moving towards non-duality, so it would be a preferential state for ancestral communication. Yes. And the third one is, again, I can't give you any science for this, but I can tell you I believe it. A epiphenomenon of full spiritual enlightenment is the ability to enter other people's dreams. Yes. Now, people might get freaked out, but it's, oh, God, this means people are going to enter my dream. Only the good guys can do it because it's an epiphenomenon of full spiritual awakening. Yes. So if someone is fully spiritual, spiritually awakened, you want them to be coming into your dream to give you teachings and to help you and to guide you. Yes. So anyone who's worried about, oh, the dark shamans being able to get in my dream, nah. The level of consciousness required to intentionally enter into somebody else's dream while they are lucid is so high that it negates the, uh, the, the harmful people from being able to do it. Absolutely, and what about the voice? You know, when you hear the mm. voice, it's giving very important instructive information. I read something recently by Carl Jung where he talked about the voice of the higher self in a dream seeming like it was coming from a kind of a third person. Yes. So in that dream I had where I healed my eyes yes. and it was like a voice, my voice, but coming over almost an intercom, I thought, oh, that was my higher self. You know, that was 
what in, in Buddhist terminology we would call the Buddha nature, the already awakened aspect of ourself. Carl Jung called it the self with a big S, mm -hmm. and then the post-Jungians called it the higher self to make that kind of a differentiation. I truly believe that higher self can talk to us in the lucid dream state as well as the waking state, but we have the eyes, we have the eyes open to see it mm -hmm. and the ears open to hear it far better in the lucid dream than we sometimes do in the waking state. Because sometimes it can bring in symbolism or imagery that's familiar or linked up with what they're about to tell you, so you're already in a prepared state to hear it. Your higher self will appear to you in your lucid dreams based upon and sourced from your personal relationship to your internal archetypes. So for example, my higher self in the lucid dream will often appear as Buddha or my guru, Lama Yeshe Rinpoche, uh, a Christian practitioner. Their higher self might appear in the dream as Mother Mary or Jesus. Um, a Sufi practitioner, one of the great poets, Rumi or Hafiz, might appear in the lucid dream as their higher self. It's the same as when we die. The same process occurs, but your angels and your demons are different from my angels and my demons. They will be based on our archetypal internal relationships. So do you or do you not believe that we can actually meet with each other in dream time? I believe it is possible. Um, I believe because the lucid dream state is said to be a state where your sixth sense capacity, your clairvoyance is um, heightened, that if you were in a lucid dream and I was in a lucid dream at the same time, so we're both sleeping at the same time, physical reality, the possibility of psychic communication would be hundreds of times greater than the possibility of psychic communication right now in the waking state. Um, so yes, it is possible, uh, and yes, it is triable. And I would ask people to experiment. If you and your partner can get into lucid dreaming, see if you can communicate psychically. Okay, so in your book you write about Antonio, okay, and smoking. Yes. And overcoming smoking. So we're gonna give a really kind of simple, ex direct yeah. example of how you can help heal something. Yeah. So Antonio saw me give that talk where I was uh, referencing how I healed my ear infection. And this was at a music festival. So he came to me and was saying, uh, you know, do you think I can heal my addiction to nicotine through the lucid dream? And if so, how? And I was talking about, oh, you could go in the lucid dream and call out affirmations. I live a healthy lifestyle free of the addiction of cigarettes. Classic hypnotic suggestion stuff in the lucid dream. But he was way more creative than me. He got lucid and he thought, well, where's the source of my addiction? For him, he believed the source of his addiction was his brain. So he became lucid, and once he was lucid, oh wow, I'm dreaming, okay, I'm asleep in bed, but now I'm, I'm in my mind, he called out to meet his brain. So he goes, my brain, my brain, and this woman walks in, and he's like, are you my brain? And she's kind of nonplussed and goes, yeah, yeah, I'm your brain. And he goes, wow, uh, uh, well, how am I? You know, physically, and she goes, ah, you're okay, but you know what you need to stop? And he kind of, you know, oh, it's the smoking, isn't it? And she went, yup. It's kind of like that with him. And he went, well, how can I stop? And she looked at him and he said, well, um, every time I think about a cigarette, every time I want a cigarette, will you make me think of something else or do something else? And his brain in the form of this woman just went, yep. And he woke up. Short, lucid dream. We're talking like 30 seconds, right? And he didn't smoke again for two weeks. Two weeks later, he emails me. He tells me this dream. To be honest, I'm a bit skeptical. I was thinking, well, maybe it's just a big dose of placebo because it was such a strong lucid dream. Can you let me know in two months? Two months later, I get another email. He's like, I'm still not smoking, dude. Now at this point, I'm writing the second book. So I'm thinking, oh, what a great case study. But I've got to make sure this is for real. So I thought, well, I can't just ask him. I need to ask someone close to him. 
So I spoke to his boyfriend, who's called Charlie, actually. And Charlie is a smoker and was still a smoker. So Charlie was smoking around him. He said, yeah, he hasn't smoked since the lucid dream, but also something strange has happened. Antonio usually does our weekly shop. And I give him the list of everything to buy in the shops, including my weekly cigarettes. And he said, for a couple of weeks now, Antonio has come back with everything on the list from the shops, but not the cigarettes. Why could that be? And then I thought, okay, I remember from my hypnosis training in my early 20s, there's something called negative hallucination, which is if you can implant a hypnotic suggestion deep enough into someone's unconscious, right. they will literally not see what you have hypnotized them right. to see. And I thought, could it be that he was literally not even seeing the word cigarette on the shopping list? Interesting. I don't know. But since then, I've wheeled Antonio out in London a few times, actually, to show he exists. I love it. But the last time he came, I was teaching nearby, and I said, oh, here's Antonio. He hasn't smoked for two years. And he went, and I was like, uh, what do you mean? He went, I went oh, uh, okay, it turns out Antonio has smoked for two years. I thought, oh, no. So I gave him the mic, and he said, okay, I just wanted to check if it was still in place, because it's been two years now. So I did have a cigarette. And I said, oh, what happened when you had the cigarette? He said, I had two puffs and it was disgusting. Oh, good. So he even <laughs> tested it two years later and it was still in place. Again, viewers might think, oh, it's just a heavy dose of the placebo. Yep, but so what? So it what? works. Yeah, the one thing that does work is placebo. Yeah, so exactly. So we'll put that against yeah, most absolutely. any chemical absolutely. You know, <laughs> solution. People love flying dreams. Mm. Comment on flying dreams and then add in another couple archetypal dreams and what you think their particular meaning is. So I used to think that once you got lucid in a dream and you chose to fly, that maybe it's kind of a waste, just oh, spending your lucid dreams flying about. And then I looked into the Tibetan literature on it. And actually they say flying in, in a lucid dream is a great thing to do because it expresses freedom and it moves the mind beyond its habitual limitations. Mm. Because just like walking through a brick wall, what is the other thing that human beings believe to be impossible? Human flight. So actually, when we fly in a lucid dream, what's happening to our neural pathways? When we fly, I mean, it's mm. creating neural pathways saying, the impossible is possible. Now, how will that affect our waking life? That impossible business project, that impossible creative venture, that impossible relationship that we've always thought was beyond us? If we fly in our lucid dreams, maybe that's creating an atmosphere oh. of possibility that will affect our waking state. That's interesting. I would have never thought of it that way. Give us a couple archetypal dreams like flying that many people experience that have that kind of great value. There's an interesting archetypal dream around teeth falling out. Now, a lot of people have this. Again, from, from Zimbabwe to Mexico, you'll find people having this dream. And people ask, why is it so universal? Think about what your teeth are used for. They're used to feed you and to protect you. Now, we think if someone came in here to attack us, we'd fight them with our fists. Back in the day, you'd bite them, mm -hmm. you know? So actually, with our teeth falling out, often we have that dream when we're feeling like we can't feed ourselves, money worries, or we can't protect ourselves, relationship worries, socioeconomic worries. Now, if you can get lucid in a dream where your teeth are falling out, you could actually ask the dream, what does my teeth falling out represent? Right. And the dream will respond. A dream character could literally walk in and say, dude, you've got to get your finances in order. We're struggling here. Yeah. I'm trying to help you, but you need to sort this out in real life. Yeah. It's amazing what you can get from the dream if you ask. It seems so simple. But just two weeks ago, I was feeling stuck. I felt like I had so many projects that had come to an end in this year. What was the next big project? So I got lucid and I called out to the dream, show me what I need to see. 
not show me what I want to see, show me what I need mm -hmm. to see, instantly the dream transformed and gave me a very powerful indication about continuing doing the work I've been doing with veterans. Mm -hmm. I'm working with veterans, a lot of who have PTSD and the PTSD nightmares that come with them. Um, and this year I realized my biggest project this year will be working with veterans and the dream is supportive of that. So it's given me a whole, uh, a new sense of confidence towards that project that I simply didn't have before that lucid dream. I love it, and you're doing a big project in America. Um, is it with the with Veterans Association, or who is it with? So the project in America is funded by a UK organization called the Winston Churchill Scholarship Foundation. You have to apply for all these things, and they whittle you down to a shortlist, super shortlist, then you have an interview process. And I got the scholarship to go to America and study best practice in mindfulness-based PTSD treatment. So I'll be working with Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote a book called The Body Keeps the Score. I'll be working with Richard Miller, who developed something called the IRS, which is a form of integrative uh, uh, yoga nidra, especially for trauma uh, survivors. And then I'll be coming back to the UK and developing a new workshop for UK veterans and veterans' family members, who are just as important to work with as the veterans themselves, how we can use lucid dreaming and mindfulness of dream and sleep to help with nightmares and PTSD. Good work. Okay, we just have a little bit of time. So, we've already said before you go to sleep, you need to set the intention that you want to have a dream mm. that you can recognize. Mm -hmm. and you need to tell yourself to wake up enough at the right time to be able to record that dream, right? Yes. Please give us the rest of the list and also some supplements that can help with dreaming. Brilliant. So yeah, those first three um, three things on the list I'd say. Set the intention to remember your dreams, not even lucid, yes. just normal dreams. Then document your dreams in some way. Write them down, um, draw them, even dance them. Whatever you want to do to show the dreamer, I'm listening. After decades of not listening, I'm now listening. People say, I don't write down my dreams because they're so boring. I say, you have boring dreams because you don't write them down. You need to let the dreamer know I'm listening. So we document our dreams in some way. We use our dream diaries to spot these patterns. Then we set triggers that the next time I see what I often dream about, my dead grandmother or talking baby animals, I will know that I'm dreaming. These are our first three steps towards lucidity. Another thing you can do, very simple, is as you fall asleep tonight, in the second half of the night if possible, so if you wake up to pee in the night right. or something like that, more likely to have your longer dreams in the second half. As you're falling back asleep in the second half of the night, just be reciting over and over in your mind, tonight I recognize my dreams. Tonight, I am lucid in my dreams. Tonight, I recognize my dreams. Tonight, I am lucid in my dreams. When we fall asleep, we pass through something called the hypnagogic state, which we see from the root of the word, it's close to hypnosis. It's a natural state of hypnosis. So if as we pass through that, we engage the hypnotic suggestion to become lucid in our dreams, we engage a very powerful intention that may well help us get lucid tonight. I love it. It's been an absolutely delightful conversation. Thank you. Oh, one final thing. What are the supplements that often help with going into dream time a little more easily? Vitamin supplements? Yes. Okay. The only natural supplements that I could advise people to try are things with high B vitamin content. Okay. Um, if you can get it naturally through things like spirulina, kale, which is super trendy now, uh, spinach, anything dark green leafy vegetables, loads of B vitamins. If you haven't quite got that in your diet, then if you were to have like a little B vi vitamin supplement you can buy from a pharmacy um, after a few hours of sleep, it won't do you any harm, it'll be good for you, and it will give you longer REM periods, dream periods in which you can recognize your dreams. Very good. Thank you so much for the how-to part of it. And thank you for the entire conversation. It was absolutely delightful. Thank you. It's and been a pleasure. And thank you for driving in thank you. to join us here.
Since everyone loves the subject of dreams, you might want to pick up a copy of Lucid Dreaming, available at all major booksellers. Until next time, thank you for joining us here in London for Open Minds. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gaia's Consciousness Podcast. Learn even more at Gaia.com and watch interviews, movies, and original series, all to empower the evolution of consciousness. For more information, visit GaiaPodcast.com. Gaia. Watch. Belong. Transform.